if you will look at your 50 principles of miracles. We did the first 10 last time, and we'll do through uh, 19. We'll do uh, 11 through 19 this time, and then next time we'll, we'll do the next 10, beginning with number 20. I'll read them first, and we can discuss them as we go through this. Prayer is the medium of miracles. It is a means of communication of the created with the creator. Through prayer, love is received, and through miracles, love is expressed. Miracles are thoughts. Thoughts can represent the lower or bodily level of experience or the higher or spiritual level of experience. One makes the physical, the other creates the spiritual. So let's talk about just those first two for just a second. This puts forward a very simple idea that A Course in Miracles puts forth over and over again. All metaphysical systems, most Eastern systems that I know, put forth the same simple thought. And that is that our experience is our thinking made manifest. So all of our thoughts are translated into experience. Every thought we think takes form in this world in some way. Now obviously we don't believe that, or we wouldn't go around thinking in the manner that we do. But what, the way we think it operates is that our mind is somehow inside this skull, and that we have uh, these private thoughts that no one knows about, and that they don't affect anyone or anything, and they probably don't even affect us. They, they probably don't even affect our body. A Course in Miracles says, and everyone else that has written on this subject that I've read says, no, it's just the opposite. Everyone knows what you're thinking. They may not acknowledge it, but they feel it. On some level, you are in communication with every living thing. The teaching also says that whatever you experience is an outgrowth, an outpicturing of your mental state. Now, many of us see that with our children. They, they, they so obviously act out whatever mood that we're in. And the only two moods that we're capable of, according to A Course in Miracles, is love or fear. Fear comes by many different names, and so does love, but that's the only two things that we can choose between. So if we're scared, if we're anxious, we are at the same time cruel. And everything around us will picture that in some way. Everyone will be a version of what we believe we are at that moment. So if we are attacking someone in our mind, we cannot help but believe we are an attacker. Nor can we help but believe that the universe attacks us. And so everything will be a version of that 
everything will seem to attack us at least a little bit. But we will say, because we believe our thoughts are private, I have nothing to do with this. I am a victim of this person's tone of voice. I am a victim of the way this clerk is treating me in the store, of my in-laws, of whatever it may be, of the noise that the refrigerator is making. <laughs> I'm a victim of that because my thoughts are private and I'm totally cut off from the world. I live inside my skull and I peer out little eye sockets and I hear out of teeny little holes in the side of my head and that's where I am. And nothing that happens is my responsibility. The first thing, of course, that we learn is that little things are our responsibility. Little accidents. I remember a, a movie it, uh, that uh, Paul Newman made about a race car driver. He went up to his apartment and found that his wife was sleeping with his best friend. He just walked out of the room and went down to his car. And as he was getting in his car, he slammed his head into the top of the uh, door as it, by accident, it appeared to be an accident. It was so clear that it wasn't an accident. That, that scene rang true to anyone who saw it. He, of course, was feeling guilty because you cannot attack or judge another person without attacking or judging yourself. And any time we feel guilty, we make a request that we be punished. It's unavoidable. If we're guilty, we say, I must suffer in some way. And our only choice is what suffering, form of suffering, do we wish? <clears throat> One very interesting thing about physical illness is how obviously it represents the particular way that we have not forgiven ourselves. The next time that you're experiencing some sort of physical difficulty, you might try the following experiment. Why don't you, let's do this right now. Let me ask you to participate in this. Close your eyes just for a moment. If you are feeling some physical distress right now, uh, use that as the subject. If not, Remember some physical uh, type of uh, pain or affliction that seems to reoccur in your life. Or something that happened once that you're afraid might happen again. Whatever has come to your mind now is fine. Now, for just a moment, see if you can make that as real as possible. Remember the particular form of physical distress, whatever it may be. It may just be a tightness in your stomach that or shortness of breath that occurs occasionally. Maybe uh, lower back pain. Maybe uh, angina. It may be any number of things. Just take one of those things. Recall it now in as much detail as you can. And step back from your body just for a moment. So you're picturing your body. You're picturing where the distress occurs or is occurring. And you step back now from your body. And as you look at it, mentally run toward it 
and choke it, kick it, scratch it, whatever you need to do to produce that particular form of distress. And as you do that, as you attack your body, yell out mentally, you deserve this, take this, as you hit it or scratch it. You deserve this because... You can open your eyes now. Uh, if, if you are a little anxious about that and nothing seemed to happen, you can try that at another time. Uh, that will merely show you how uh, ironic, uh, almost humorous, this particular form of physical distress is. How exactly it represents the way in which you have not forgiven yourself. So because prayer is a medium of miracles, and because miracles themselves are thoughts, we can only enter heaven head first. We think we can enter it deed first, smiling first, talking sweetly first. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but if the thought is murderous, then the act does not take us to heaven. And when can heaven be experienced but this eternal instant? So it simply doesn't lift the people around us from hell into heaven. It doesn't lift them from fear into peace if the thought itself is not peaceful. 13 says, Miracles are both beginnings and endings. And so they alter the temporal order. They are always affirmations of rebirth, which seem to go back, but really go forward. They undo the past in the present, and thus release the future. This is such a freeing thought once it's recognized, because we all really do believe that we are still damaged by the past, by things that we've done, by thoughts we have thought in the past, that we must pay for these things that we've done. This says that a miracle is a beginning and ending, and that it releases the past in the present. So it simply points out the very obvious fact that the past is over. It's completely done with. The only way it can hurt us is if we activate it, if we mentally activate it. If we mentally activate it, it can appear to hurt us, but it will be hurting us in the present, not because it can reach an arm out and grab us. It's completely done with. And likewise, it isn't this upcoming event. Uh, it isn't uh, who we're going to see this Christmas. Maybe the family's getting together. Maybe our child is coming to visit us who hasn't been here so long. That's not <clears throat> what's scaring us. It isn't the fact that our child will visit us Christmas that's scaring us. It isn't the fact that we are going back home and we're going to see our parents. And uh, this has just never worked, seeing our parents. That isn't what's scaring us. It's what we are doing with our mind right now that's scaring us. The difference is that if we think it is an upcoming event, even if it's supposed to take place in 30 seconds. 
If we think that's what's scaring us, we're a victim. We're absolutely helpless. This is, so, this is such a freeing thought once it's seen. The past hurts me only when I think of it. Only when I build the bridge to this event, to this scene of guilt, to this embarrassment. The future can hurt me only when I make it a part of my present experience. Because the future is the future. It hasn't happened. How can it possibly scare us? It hasn't happened. It's what we're doing with our mind that scares us. The miracle is simply a deep sinking into this moment. It's simply a loss of interest in the future. A complete lack of interest in how people have behaved in the past. Miracles bear witness to truth. They are convincing because they arise from conviction. Without conviction, they deteriorate into magic, which is mindless and therefore destructive, or rather, the uncreative use of mind. So that is the key as to whether or not we're using our mind in such a way that will make us happy, that will turn this slaughterhouse into a garden. If we're scared, if we feel anxiety, we are simply misusing our mind. Because a miracle arises from conviction. There's a sense of certainty about it. It comes from the very ground of our being. It's already there. And when we cease to defend ourselves against it, there is no question as to the outcome of all of this. Each day should be devoted to miracles. The purpose of time is to enable you to learn how to use time constructively. It is thus a teaching device and a means to an end. Time will cease when it is no longer useful in facilitating learning. <coughs> Miracles are teaching devices for demonstrating it is as blessed to give as to receive. They simultaneously increase the strength of the giver and supply strength to the receiver. How many times do we stumble over that one? How many times have we thought that it was a sacrifice to be kind? How many times have we thought that doing something that made someone else happy made us less happy? That simply isn't a possibility. Anytime we give actual gentleness to another person, it strengthens us immediately. There is no such thing as burnout if our activity is simply to allow the love that's already in our heart to come forth. Because it is a not doing. Letting people in is largely a matter of not expending the energy to keep them out. I don't know who said that. <laughs> 
That's all. We just let down our defenses and the conviction, the strength, the love, the gentleness just comes out all by itself. There's nothing for us to do about it. Miracles transcend the body. That's why there's nothing for us to do about it. They are sudden shifts into invisibility, away from the bodily level. That is why they heal. We'll talk some more about that in just a moment. A miracle is a service. It is the maximal service you can, re- you can render to another. It is a way of looking, it is a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. You recognize your own and your neighbor's worth simultaneously. Miracles make minds one in God. They depend on cooperation because the sonship is the sum of all that God created. Miracles therefore reflect the laws of eternity. They depend on cooperation. We don't have to get the cooperation of our spouse in order to heal our relationship with our spouse. It depends on it. It reflects the laws of eternity. We already have the cooperation of our spouse on the level at which the miracle will occur and come forth. We do. We never have our spouse's cooperation on the ego level. We never have our child's cooperation on the ego level or our employees or our boss or our parents. Anytime we think we have someone else's ego's cooperation, we have deeply deceived ourselves. At best, an alliance has been formed, an alliance of convenience in which one ego sees an advantage in cooperating with another ego. That's what's called special love. And special love always turns to special hate. So whenever we try to change anyone, we're working on the wrong level. Whenever we say to ourselves, in our heart, as we look upon this person, in our thought or before us now, when we say, you already love me. We are now practicing on the correct level. And if we continue just a little while, the miracle will be ours. The relationship will be healed. I don't care how long the wound has remained open, how much sand has been kicked into it. It closes in just a second if we persist past this level of the ego, past this surface that we continually try to manipulate and appease and conjole. So, we have covered the first 19 miracles. Now, what I've done is I've I've asked some questions and I've let these first 19 principles of miracles answer the questions. 
Here's the question. First question. What are miracles? Now, since you have spent so much time studying these first 19, I know that, that you won't have to think much about this. You can let, let your mind drift. But in case there's someone here who hasn't and thinks that this material is just uh, too abstruse, too abstract, let's just listen to what we've already read this Sunday and last Sunday as the answer to this. What, what are miracles? These are almost all direct quotes. Miracles as such do not matter. The only thing that matters is their source. Real miracles are expressions of love. All expressions of love are maximal. No such thing as loving someone more. If we love them, that comes from God, and it's without limit. There's no anxiety in it, and it heals immediately. All expressions of love are maximal. Therefore, all miracles are the same. They cannot be evaluated. They are affirmations of rebirth. They always mean life. They are witnesses to truth. They are thoughts. They are sudden shifts into invisibility. They are the maximal service you can render another. How do miracles occur? <clears throat> they occur naturally. Once again, these are all quotes from the first 19. They occur naturally. They are everyone's right. When they don't occur, something has gone wrong. They are habits. They should not be under conscious control. They should not be consciously selected. Prayer is their medium. Through prayer, love is received. Through miracles, love is expressed. Because all miracles are expressions of love. What do miracles do? They direct you very specifically. They tell you all you need to know. They heal. They supply a lack. They reverse the physical laws. They bring more love to both the giver and the receiver. They increase the strength of the giver and supply strength to the receiver. They allow you to recognize your own and your neighbor's worth simultaneously. They undo the past. They release the future. They transcend the body. They make all minds one in God. Here's the last question. What is our part? What's our part in all of this? You know, we've talked about that song that we're going to sing a little later. Row, row, row your boat gently downstream. And we've talked about God's great humor and providing that as our part to play. To row the boat Gently down the stream. 
Well, the boat goes down the stream by itself. And if you're rowing it gently down the stream, all you're doing is not interfering. <laughs> That's really the only thing we have to do is not interfere. Now, why is that so difficult for us to learn? Simplicity is very difficult for a confused mind to understand, says A Course in Miracles. Our whole approach to life is to do something. Something needs to be done. I'm not complete. I'm not sa I ain't got no satisfaction. <laughs> so, what is our part? To allow ourselves to be inspired by love. To allow ourselves to be directed. To not consciously select the miracle to be performed. To not use miracles as spectacles to induce belief. Not, if you use a miracle, you're not wrong gently. You're saying, I know what the next step should be. And if you see you've taken a step, and if you use this to breathe life into your ego, if you turn this to praise, you are using the miracle and you're not wrong gently. So what is our part? To pray, to be pure, to not be afraid. Those are all the same thing. <clears throat> to be pure is simply to have a clean mind. That doesn't mean that our thoughts uh, are not uh, sensual. It means that we don't have any thoughts. That's what a pure mind is. A pure mind is simply a still mind. It's simply a mind in which there is not so much clatter and clamor that the peace of God can enter it. <clears throat> it's the same thing as not being afraid. And not being afraid is the same thing as allowing the miracle to rise from the certainty that's already in us. We don't have to do anything to not be afraid. We have to do something to be afraid. We have to tell ourselves what can hurt us. Review all the times we think this thing might have hurt us, could have hurt us, or did hurt us. What is our part? To not let our thoughts represent the lower level of experience. Oh, well, I can't do that. We're not asked to do it. We're asked to try to do it. To begin to do it. It says that the lower level of experience is the same as the body, bodily level of experience. So what do we see when we see each other as merely a body? We're seeing each other's lower mind. That's all. There's nothing wrong in that. It's just such a limited view. Here we're standing on the top of a mountain, and we're looking down at a crushed Coors beer can. 
So if we see each other only as a body, if we don't see the pure light of God streaming from this person, then we're just looking at their lower mind. We're dealing only with our lower mind. And so what do we do? We just stop it. We just don't do that anymore. We practice not doing it. We don't have to see someone as the child of God. They are already the child of God. We don't have to see them as innocent. Their innocence shines before us with a light that's so bright that nothing on this earth is even a glimmer in comparison. If we will not defend ourselves against another person, we will see their innocence. How innocent they were in all they did. What is our part? To devote each day to miracles. To use time constructively. How do you use time constructively? We forget to see them as a body. We do not bring into our mind all the thoughts that say this person is nothing but a body and a behavior. We see someone as their behavior, we haven't seen them. If we see someone as their behavior, how they have acted in the past, we are not in the position to heal them. And we will judge ourselves the same instant. So the other side of the same stick is I don't want to be sick because I want to demonstrate, witness to, illustrate, make apparent that there is such a thing as the law of love. Is there such a thing as the law of love? Is this all a bunch of baloney? Is there a law that says, I want my child to be happy, and you are my child. My will is for you to be happy. And there is nothing to oppose my will. Is there such a law? Is the promise, I will never leave you comfortless, absolutely vacant and absurd, is the promise, I am with you always. Is that poppycock? When we use our mind to affirm that this world is crushing us, that our relationship with our spouse is devouring us, that there are people in our way, and to make spiritual progress we've got to walk over them and get them out of our lives, we say that all of those things are poppycock. And so what we wish instead, what we begin to practice instead, we begin practicing allowing our body and our eyes and our forehead and our mouth say to everyone we meet, not verbally, we don't say these words to them. They just look at us. And it says, our expression says, our demeanor says, our life says, our peace says to them, 
it is as blessed to give as it is to receive. I do not want anything from you, my brother, my sister. I wish nothing from you. I give you my peace. I don't want to be sick because I don't want to witness that there is a law that crushes you, that illness picks you out and attacks you. I do not want to witness to you that we must go through this life depressed. And it's so hard. I don't want to witness to you that Christmas is so hard. It's such a chore and a bore. I don't want to witness that to you. We don't say that. We say that. They look at us and say, in their heart they say, Christmas isn't a chore and a bore. It's obvious it's not a chore and a bore. We just don't want to witness to that. We just practice witnessing something else. What is our part? To love your neighbor as yourself. That's such a straightforward statement. How many times have we heard it? How many times have we said it? We are each other. Doesn't look that way. It looks like we're separate. Looks like we have separate interests. Looks as if everyone uh, wants something a little different from what we want on every single occasion. Sit down to a meal. Everybody orders something different, or if we order the same thing, we don't eat it at the same rate, or we eat a little bit more of the refried beans and a little less of the chili sauce. Everybody is wanting something a little different. That's the way it appears. It doesn't appear that we connect. We don't feel any deep connection when we talk to people. That's the way it appears. What does A Course in Miracles say? Same thing that Lao Tse said, and Shankara, and Buddha, and the I Ching, and Obi Wan Kenobi, and every you know everybody said it. <laughs> you just practice shifting your thought to invisibility. You must look past what your body's eyes are reporting to you. You must gently question the assumption that what your body's eyes see is all there is before you. Gently ask yourself, is that true? Is this person only what I see now? So let's turn to the uh, lesson, and we'll take up a little practice that can show us how to do that. It's very important that we not Worship the means whereby love floods our heart and the day turns to splendor. The day will turn to splendor. Now this is what we all did when we were teenagers. The, the day turned to splendor. There was a time when we were 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, sometime. The day turned to splendor. 
The mistake we made was we began worshiping what we thought was the context in which it occurred, the means that produced it. So we said, I'm going to be a priest. I'm going to be a movie star to act and make people laugh and forget their worries is what I want to do. I want to be a school teacher because we were in a class and Miss Johnson made the world turn to splendor. Maybe just for a second or two. I want to be a teacher, he said. Now, all that's happened is that we have tried out a few of the means and they turn to dust. It doesn't make any difference if you're a teacher, if you're an actor or an actress, if you have lots of money, if you have the most beautiful wife, if you have the most intelligent children. It turns to dust. But the splendor never was there. That's why it wasn't coming from that. That's just the, that's just what surrounded us at the time it came. So we don't worship the means. We simply ask, do I want to see the splendor? I have been told for thousands of years, it is before me now. Do I want to see it? I have been told that every person that I come in contact with today is the child of God. Let me ask you to close your eyes just for a moment. Just for a moment. And imagine what it would feel like to be the child of God. Did you sense just a little bit of the loveliness, of the peace, of the beauty, of the brightness, of the ease? We have been told that the person before us now, maybe you're only seeing the back of their head, the person before you now is the child of God. You look straight at Christ and do not see him says A Course in Miracles. Is that poppycock? Or is it a fact? Why then continue to see everyone guilty and crushed and depressing and boring and nasty and dirty and old and diseased when we have been told that if we will just allow, if we will just let our vision pass beyond that surface, we will see the child of God. So lesson number two gives us another simple way to do that. This book contains 365 ways to do it. One for each day of the year. Let me read lesson two. It's one of the little sheets that uh, you were handed. Now remember, at the end of lesson one, it said, 
Each of the first three lessons should not be done more than twice a day each, preferably morning and evening, nor should they be attempted for more than a minute or so. Do you know how many people I've heard say, I don't have time to do A Course in Miracles? They should not be attempted for more than a minute or so. Two minutes. How long do we spend cussing out somebody? Just how many times do we do we complain? How many times are we wrapping our fingers because something hasn't happened yet? The TV program hasn't come on. The line hasn't moved. Something. Two minutes? We don't have two minutes? If this whole world can be seen in splendor, and upon seeing it, we can raise the dead and heal the sick and take away every lack and every pain of every person who's in our life, we can't give two minutes? So often we don't think so. So often we are just too tired. We just drop in bed. We can't sit there on the edge of our bed and just take a few seconds to talk to God, to open up our, our heart, to allow a little gentleness to flow into our mind. We're just too tired. We'll have to do it tomorrow. Nor should they be attempted for more than a minute or so unless this entails a sense of hurry. A comfortable sense of leisure is essential. See, this is another thing that's uh, true about a spiritual path. A Course in Miracles is just one spiritual path. And that is, it's a pleasure to walk that path. Now, your ego will tell you that this is just one more burden that you've added to your life. So you say, uh, I've given all this head of hair in front of me, all the meaning it has. I've given this chair. Whatever your eyes light upon you, say the thing specifically to yourself. The exercises with this idea are the same as those for the first. You begin where you are in your meditation, in your practicing of love, and your search for light, and your search for the other world that's right here, we've been told is here. Your search for it, your general search, you're not going to look for it. Everybody said it's here. You don't see it. You're going to begin. I've, I've, I've noticed how often the mystics that I have read have said, start where you are and then go outward. Then increase the range outward. Turn your head so that you include whatever is on either side, if possible. Turn around and apply the idea to what is behind you. Now, we're going to do this in a minute. If it would embarrass you to turn around, uh, don't turn around. Uh, the, 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 the purpose of, of a spiritual path is to bring peace to your mind. It isn't to make you scared. If it scares you to turn around and catch someone's eye, then you don't have to do that. That isn't the purpose. The purpose is peace. says, if possible. Remain as indiscriminate as possible in selecting subjects for its application. Do not concentrate on anything in particular. When we concentrate on anything in particular, 
we start judging it and want to change it. Notice that. Notice as you sit in your chair someday in your house and let your eyes wander around the house. Whatever your eyes light upon, you will say to yourself, is inadequate in some way. It needs to be changed. Whatever person you begin to concentrate on will seem to need fixing. <laughs> you can see marriages in the worst throes of uh, hatred and attack and then there's some external crisis and everybody loves each other for a while. Why? Simply because they are not fixing their tension on each other. Love is a gentle sweeping of the mind. It leaves nothing out the ego is a fixed, fearful concentration that says, you are to blame for my not being happy. It says this to the TV set or whatever, the weather. We have a couple of people in our um, Thursday night group who... Uh, don't like uh, the traffic in Santa Fe. Don't like the way the cars drive. Now, for some reason, I just haven't focused my attention on the the way people drive in Santa Fe. Uh, so I had I hadn't experienced that. But uh, I will. I knew that if I did, I would experience immediately that it needs to be fixed, you know. <laughs> Do not attempt to include everything you see in a given area or you will introduce strain. So it's just a gentle shifting of the mind. You just let the mind loose. And it will love. It will see innocence. It will give gifts of healing. Miracles will start popping all over the place and you'll wonder what you had done to allow this to happen. You did nothing. That's what you did. <laughs> That's what allowed it. Merely glance easily and fairly quickly around you, trying to avoid selection by size, brightness. It's so interesting what we value. Uh, those of you who have read a little anthropology know that different societies value different parts of the body. There are societies that, that value earlobes, societies that, that uh, value noses. Uh, uh, it, was, it was probably only a hundred years ago, maybe less than that, that, that men valued women's ankles. Do you know that? If you saw an ankle, this was really something. It's constantly shifting the emphasis, the things that we pick out and say, Oh, I've got to see that! Those things up, of course. 
<laughs> I promise you that if we were stopped, why are we covering up the things we're covering up? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why those things are we covering up? I mean, it's totally arbitrary. Other societies cover other things. Don't look at anything below the nostrils. <laughs> Don't, huh? For some societies, you're not supposed to look below the nostrils. It's a sin if you do that. I promise you, if we were to cover up elbows and heels, <laughs> and there were magazines, <laughs> in which someone was shoving their heel right into the camera, <laughs> you could buy these for, for enormous sums of money under the counter God would you look at the elbows on that girl <laughs> merely glance easily and fairly quickly around you trying to avoid selection by size, brightness, color, material, or relative importance to you. Take the subject simply as you see them. Try to apply the exercise with equal ease to a body or a button, a fly or a floor, an arm or an apple. The sole criterion for applying the idea to anything is merely that your eyes have lighted on it. Make no attempt to include anything particular, but be sure that nothing is specifically excluded. So let's try that. We're just going to do it for a minute or so. You'll start with the things that are immediately around you. You'll look out. You'll say uh, the back of this chair, whatever it is you're looking at, uh, I've given the back of this chair all the meaning it has for me. I've given this uh, sweater. I've given this mirror. I've given whatever it is your eyes light on. You begin with what is nearest you, and then you apply it to things outside of you. And we're just going to do that for a minute or so. given it all the meaning it has for me. That's what you say. Let me ask you to do something now. Uh, please hold some money in your hand. It can be a coin or a, a bill. You're going to get to put it back. <laughs> no one's going to uh, come around and ask you for it. This is. <laughs> <laughs>
Now please, just as an experiment, just look at that. Just for a moment. Just look calmly at it. Just look at it with as calm a mind as you can look at it. Don't worry about how calm. Just look at it calmly and say to yourself, I have given this little triangular rectangular, excuse me, this little rectangular, <laughs> this little rectangular piece of paper. I've given this uh, metal disc all the meaning it has for me. I have given it all the meaning it has for me. Okay, now just let, just put it. Uh, don't have to put it up yet. Just put it in your lap just for a second. Now, let's think just for a moment what we have done in the name of that rectangular piece of paper, that little piece of little strip of paper, that little metal disc. How many people have been killed, literally murdered, to get a few more little strips of paper? How many people have based their self-esteem on how large their stack of green strips of paper was? Look at that. We think we are not heathens. We think we do not worship idols. Metal calves, calves of stone that have no life, that can do nothing for us. We think only the Aborigines do this? The Tassadaya? What, pick out your tribe? They worship this inanimate object. They think it will do something for them. We do exactly the same thing. What can that little strip of paper do? Can that give you a loving feeling about yourself? Of course not, it can't. Okay, you can put that up now. Did you know that A Course in Miracles says that the same thing that applies to ideas applies to objects? If you give an idea away, it strengthens the idea for you. That's why if you attack someone, it strengthens your belief that they indeed are guilty. If, however, in your mind, you love someone, if you make someone more relaxed or more comfortable, then that idea is strengthened in you. Now, A Course in Miracles says, you don't realize this, but exactly the same thing is true about money and cars and objects around the house and clothes. You cannot be hurt by giving someone money who needs it. You cannot be hurt by giving someone space who needs it. You can be hurt if you think you must protect your space. Because now you're not giving it away. Now you're defending it and it becomes pure fear. Speaking of pure fear, 
why don't we sing some more?